Hello, dearest patrons, welcome back. What you're about to hear now is the second half of the interview with Vivek Chibber, followed by the after party. Um, let's move on to contemporary politics more deliberately. I say that. This is going to be kind of still a theoretical historical question, actually, yeah. but we're, we're, we're going to lead into the politics. Um, I think there's a growing theoretical re- realization, glimmers of it, that post-war capitalism in the core is not just one thing that capitalism can look like and certainly not the norm, um, but in fact, it's a radical exception in the history of capitalism. And this is becoming clear as the 20th century unwinds in a whole range of ways. So the end of uh, the conflict between social democracy and Christian democracy, for example, and the um, you know the kind of bipolar competition in most Western states between a center-left and a center-right, um, the growing void both between between uh, the state and citizens, as well as within any sort of collective organizations, which become hollow shells, growing precarization of work, the undoing of the kind of Fordist compact of stable employment, rising wages, and indeed even of growth. Um, and as these as the twentieth century kind of recedes into the distance, I think now we're finally getting a sense that hang on, <laughs> this period from forty five to seventy five. Um, which, you know, lingered, and you say this in the book, actually lingered in, in Western Europe through to the 90s and 2000s, is, is completely coming apart and is, is, a, is a radical exception. I think one thing that bears witness to this, um, albeit negatively and without any self-consciousness about what it's actually doing, is the nostalgia expressed by a lot of populist movements. And, and this goes for left populism of the Bernie style of Corbyn, as, as it does for right populists of like Le Pen or Trump or whatever. Um, which is a sense of loss that permeates these movements and a a desire to return. And often this is misinterpreted, I think, as cultural loss rather than material loss. And that's one of the most problematic aspects of making inroads into sort of contemporary populism um, and growing class consciousness is that it's perceived as cultural loss rather than than, um, than material loss. Um, I wouldn't exaggerate that, though. But yeah, your point is right. That I think it's also perceived as a loss of security, for sure. And the, the, all the, the, the sense of dignity and the sense of self and all that that came with that. But it's very much perceived as a loss of security. Yeah. And many all, and, and in, you know, kind of certainly right populist ones, it's like this is, um, you know, the kind of cultural left stealing everything that we used yeah. to have and so on. Yeah. Um, I, as a response to that, and not to get into the kind of culture war discussion, because that's not uh, my intention at all, um, is that, sh- I mean, should we first of be arguing one it's not coming back and that, that that should be part of the political program and that i mean something like bernie sanders or corbyn we're we're trying to say no we're going to bring that back um should we be arguing that we should we can't bring it back and that a drive for effectively social integration um is not what we should be pursuing that we're back in the situation of you know 19th century early 20th century and that if anything it opens up more revolutionary possibilities rather than to try to seek reintegration along the lines of what you had in mid-century, which would be um, a re- an unnecessary return. Even if it were possible, it would be a return to a kind of consolidation of capitalism, which we don't want. It very much comes down to, this is a kind of a decision tree. Uh, do you, The first question is, do you really believe that revolutionary possibilities are on the cards in capitalism as we know it? And I don't believe that they are, not in this lifetime. That is to say, even if the economy came to a grinding halt in a crisis, even if there were 
a dramatic um, downscaling of legitimacy of the state, etc. The idea that you can simply, in that situation, overthrow the state, I think, distrains credulity. Because as Lenin famously said, you need two things for a revolution. It's not just that the ruled will no longer accept their position, but the ruling class starts disintegrating and starts falling apart so that they can no longer, as he said, rule in the old way. That's just not on the cards. The state today is both more legitimate and infinitely more powerful than it was in 1905 and 1917. People, I don't think, fully appreciate that it's much more likely for, for a loss of legitimacy to result in cynicism than it is in a revolutionary upsurge. Mm -hmm. Unless you have the organized capacities to actually take advantage of that situation, it's the right that's going to benefit from this. And we're seeing that unfold in slow motion. I, right I, I mean, I take the latter point, but I think what's, and I absolutely agree that the state is ever more powerful. Um, and many times the left is complicit in, in that, in, in fortifying the state. But what is really striking is the complete last, lock, last of, loss of authority that the state uh, has had. So it's very powerful, but l completely unauthoritative and lacks legitimacy. Um, I, so let's... It depends on what we're comparing against, Alex. Um, it, it is, I think, neoliberalism has lost all legitimacy. It is not clear at all that the state has lost legitimacy. It is true that its, it's authority is waning, but understand that its authority is waning under attacks from organized right-wing forces. It's, there isn't a diffuse sense of rebellion in the population. Mm -hmm. What there is in the population is a sense of desperation. Yeah. But all these sort of movements that we see, the truckers in Canada and the uh, upsurges in, in Europe, they're fairly well organized. And they're organized by right-wing forces for a political end. And the right-wing is not able to yet use this as a revolutionary opportunity for itself. I, I just don't think anything like a left revolutionary opening is on the cards right now. Th th that's my view for the, for the first node in the decision tree. If it's not on the cards, what are we then going to say to this populist moment? And you asked, should we be saying that we're going to bring X, Y, and Z back? It depends on how you conceptualize X, Y, and Z. I don't think we should be saying we're going to bring the old welfare state back because even from a socialist perspective, there are many things lacking in that welfare mm -hmm. state. That we have to not treat its demise as a pure accident. We have to also see that it failed in harnessing working class power and working class uh, culture in sustaining working class organizations. And in fact, that welfare state played a big role in atomizing the working class. So we have to learn from that experience and do a better job. So we won't say we want to bring back 1950, but we have to say, tell the workers we want to, we want to bring back your sense of security. We have to tell them we want to bring back the possibility of valuing yourself, your community, your friends and neighbors, and we're not going to tell you you're all white supremacists. We're not going to say you're you're guilty of every sin because you happen to be a male or something like that. We have to tell them that we respect them. As a left, we're going to bring back the our respect for you, and we're going to bring back your ability to lead decent lives. The institutional basis on which you'll do that will be different from what it was in the mm -hmm. 50s. But there are certain facts of the 50s and 60s, certain institutional components that do have to be brought back. The universalism, the guarantees to citizenship that come with it, et cetera, et cetera. I would not call that social integration. I would call that a kind of class compromise, a class compact that the working class fought for. 
it did have integrative consequences, but that's what we have to try to avoid. Mm. So I don't disagree with any of that, but I guess I wonder whether there aren't in some of these populist moments of various different forms a greater desire, not just for security, and I, I don't you know, d disagree with that, that that is one of the motive forces and the kind of politics of fear and how people respond to that, I think is bears testament to that, albeit kind of in, in a negative sense, but that there's a desire for freedom and even for self-rule, albeit in purely political terms, not really social, um, that you can see with maybe something like Brexit, with the no vote in the referendum in Greece, um, and even in the Canadian trucker strike, that there's a desire for freedom to say, and, and that we can be responsible for our own lives. Look, it's just more than just be provided It's security. much more concrete than that. Uh, the truckers is a good example where we're getting a lot of different reports, but uh, there are the you know, right-wingers and the, the right-wing libertarians and the truckers that, that press loves to focus on them. But if you just take a slightly more generous view of what's going on, yeah. because there's a lot of other people involved in those, mm -hmm. There isn't just a diffuse call for freedom. I, I was struck by one of the uh, reports I read was somebody who said, I'm fully vaccinated. Um, oh, no, no, they said that I've had the illness. My son is in the hospital, but they won't let me in to see my son because I don't have yeah. a vax card. That's not a general diffuse cry for liberty. That's saying this th these rules are getting out of control yeah. and there is an arbitrary and hence, in, my, in their view, illegitimate use of state authority against what ought to be a normal course of events in mm -hmm. their lives right and they should be supported for that but i guess you're saying that they're but it's not so ambitious perhaps as or i, I, I think in a lot of these so brexit's a good example I, I think brexit was a very specific and concrete demand on the part of the workers the 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 deepest support for brexit brexit came in the parts of england that had been the worst hit by mm -hmm. neoliberalism and where welfare state retrenchment had been the hardest in the north of england again that's not a diffuse call for more freedoms that's saying you've taken away my sustenance and i think the eu and our joining the eu is the reason that that happened now the reason i bring this up is whenever you have concrete grievances and concrete demands that's an organizing possibility you can build around it's hard to know what to do with diffuse calls for freedom because who the fuck knows what that means to anybody but we do know what it means when they say i can't get unemployment insurance the nhs is in shambles around me and i may not have a job two years from now can we do something about that so that is a call, a backward-looking call, you could call it. But that, if we can't sustain that, I don't know what we're promising them, right? Mm. So um, in all of these movements, because the media is so contemptuous towards them, because it hates them so much, because it sees everything as a threat to its class position, yeah. it paints them with the same brush. And because the le left occupies the same social space as those journalists, it has no way to pierce beyond it. Yeah. No, no, absolutely, and it's uh, it's actually disgraceful the way that all these movements are, are painted. Um, re related to that, and because of, you know, I've already referred to this sort of the void and the kind of disintermediation, the falling apart of collective institutions, of civic institutions, and so on, I wonder whether we're not moving in some ways to more directly political capitalism. And I don't just mean in terms of wealth extraction or redistribution upwards where the state comes in um, and sustains asset capitalism or um, this sort of bond purchases and everything that central banks now are doing to sustain assets. Um, that obviously is a, maybe a form of a more political capitalism, 
But I'm referring to something a little bit different in terms of more from bottom up, I guess, which is that people are much more directly involved in politics, which is a funny thing to say because it's like we thought politics was over. Now it seems to be back, but in such a bizarre um, sense that, you know, I, the, way I w the way I would put it is that the f old forms of politics have, have disappeared and what you've had is kind of hypermediatization over the 90s and 2000s. Now somehow politics comes back in, in terms of content, that it is political, but it is takes the form of what had just preceded it, which is to say the hypermediatization. And so instead of people being politicized and socialized into politics through labor unions, through the church, through whatever civic organizations, and do going about their political initiatives locally in, in small senses, but also leading up to big things too, they access politics in a much more direct and unmediated sense. And I think that seems to, I, I wonder whether you agree whether that captures our situation. And the follow-on from that, and the question that I'm leading to, and to relate it to what we've just been talking about, is whether that um, kind of much more direct politics presents an opportunity to do what socialists in the post-war period weren't able to do because effectively of, of what was, I guess, what could be called workerism or laborism, of just seeking gains through trade unions and never really becoming really political in a, in a Leninist sense. And that today maybe offers more opportunities, ironically, for being directly political, for trying to seize the state, for example. I think we're very far away from that, but... Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that was a long, long question for a short answer. Uh, let, let me tell you what. I, I think, first of all, we're in a very fluid situation right now. So, And that's a good thing. After 30 years of unshakable iron cage neoliberalism, there's a fluidity to politics right now. And we're not where I thought we would be three years ago. We're not where I thought we would be. And that's not in a good way. We're mm. worse off in some ways. Um, but... The fluidity notwithstanding, what you're describing, I think, is not a more direct politicization or a more direct politics. What you're describing is the absence of politics. Here's the way I, uh, I understand that. You Suppose we had suddenly a series of laws that said city politics or municipal politics are going to be exercised through direct democracy and we enfranchise citizens with the power of, of direct recall or for periodic audits of their political leaders etc you create a space for political contestation that wasn't there before and that would conform to the image that you're describing of people suddenly having an opportunity to engage in politics that they didn't have before what's happening today is quite different what's happening is a dramatic contraction of the actual ability of the average citizen to effect or influence political decisions. What's happening, in fact, is a kind of oligarchic populism where media figures and uh, 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 demagogues are a uh, rile up public grievances and public sentiment in a way that's pursuing decisions that are utterly trivial to their lives these culture wars that we like to talk about, what is the all of this riling up that's going on? It's not around anything that actually will affect their real lives because they've naturalized, as we said earlier, those components of their lives and that component of the power structure that touches their lives. And so the debate instead is over pronouns, 
bathrooms, CRT, all this kind of crap, which which means nothing. And because why? It's the only thing they think they can affect now, mm. the average citizen. This is a huge victory for the ruling class. It is a killing of politics in my mind, not an opening of politics. Now, it does create an opening for the left if it were so inclined. Because the grievances that fuel this rage, this activism, the rage that fuels it, is not actually because of bathrooms and pronouns. It's just that they think the same people who are shitting on them in every other part of their lives mm. not want to extend the shitting party to this part of their lives. Which is, I guess, how you evade the, the charge that could be thrown at you that now you're being consistent because you are suggesting that the oligarchic populists are blinding people to their true interests or whatever. They're not blinding. What they're saying is that you are not allowed to engage in these... So remember what I said about ideology in the book. I said it naturalized for the poor. The way in which they rationalize their situation is by naturalizing it. This is a ringing endorsement of my view. They've naturalized their class situation. They don't even bring it up anymore. What's allowing them to live with it is that give me that little bit of dignity, that little bit of dignity that says I didn't cause slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? They're fighting over that. And what the left is saying is, no, fuck you. Yeah. You will eat that shit. You will eat it. You will take it and you'll eat it. And when you're ready, come back, then we'll talk to you. This is not... Now, I, so I understand the motivation for your question, but I would not call it an opening up or a... Uh, what was the word you use? A, a hyper-politicization or something. I think it's a continuing depoliticization. Politics is when workers are fruitfully discussing their actual situation in a way, in a context where they have the institutional ability to do something about it. This is, it, it, it's tragic to see what's happening, both in the culture and then infuriating to see how what's called the progressive left reacts to mm -hmm. it. Uh, it. It makes you, this is why I think we're worse off than I thought we would have been three years from now. But I cling to the fact that it's still fluid and maybe we'll bring something out of it. Okay. No, that's good. I'm, I'm on board with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just to close off because um, we have to do this and maybe as a way of doubling back to where we started what do you see as a legacy of broadly put postmodernism and kind of all the theory of the 80s and 90s uh, today I mean we've actually did, did an episode with Catherine Liu about three years ago or something on the legacies of postmodernism but I, I, I thought I'd take the opportunity to ask you as well because I'm, I'm sure your answer will be different um, it's obviously seeped into the culture, so it's this isn't an academic debate. I'm, you know, not here asking what you think, like the the academy is doing or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what's interesting here. It's that you know people are in hawk in some ways to to, to dead thinkers. It's to to kind of paraphrase Keynes, and uh, that you know where where does that still exist? You know, there's a kind of broad culturalism today as we were discussing. That might be one of the aspects. The other thing I should highlight as well, when this is a curious irony, and I'm here, I'm I'm taking I'm stealing a point from from my co-host Phil Cunliffe, um, who you know repeatedly uh, remarked on the fact that Foucault was very quickly forgotten during the pandemic, and that all the Foucauldians then became like pro biopolitics people, and were like, yeah, cool, biopolitics, biopower is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, what, where, where do you think what do you think the legacy is? Um, let, let me take a step back. Because postmodernism is all often seen at, as an offshoot of the cultural turn. And it is. Biographically speaking, it is. I think that if one first starts by asking what is the legacy in the place of the cultural turn, that is the, and by the cultural turn we mean realizing that the study of culture is important. I think that's largely good, positive, but that was always there. I said this in an interview the other day, that 
Marxists were always cultural theorists because you can't be an organizer without engaging in culture, cultural critique. And you not only did it in a quotidian, unthinking way, you talked about it and you theorized it and you wrote pamphlets about it, about how to deal with the culture of the working class, much of it pathological, some of it positive. And, how, and if you look at pamphlets from 1920s and 30s, a good portion of them are exactly about this. How do we deal with racism within the working class? How do we deal with the culture of, of cynicism within the working class? How do we organize them? These are all cultural things. And the new left's building on that was a positive thing, and it would have happened no matter what. And I think the book makes the argument, and I would too, that not only is there a place for that, you cannot be a successful socialist movement without mm-hmm. that and without theorizing that. And okay. and probably there's a transformation in capitalism where culture and communication becomes more important. And so yeah. that needs to be responded to somehow. Yeah, which is both positive and negative, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, postmodernism is a whole other thing. Postmodernism is a cancerous growth on top of culturalism. And there, my view is there's nothing positive about it. Nothing. It was postmodernism what do you want to call it, post-structuralism and then post-colonial theory, they were the natural uh, expressions of the cultural and intellectual degeneration that took root in the 1980s and 90s. It was part of the biographical degeneration of the new left. And then the generation that followed, myself, the generation Gen Gen X, uh, which, you know, the new left still had its place in history. It did something. Look at Janet, look at my, it is the most useless, pointless generation since the French Revolution. Think of any important or even interesting Marxist between the ages of 40 and 55. You can't think of them. It is a generation that has done, it is entirely imbibed and internal to the culture of neoliberalism. Well, it's a cult. It's the generation of defeat. It's the generation of the end of history. We actually and did narcissism. a long series on. It's the generation that made narcissism indistinguishable from reflexivity. Yeah, it's so. Anyway, the point is that's the generation of post-structuralism. Yeah, and the problem is this: if the if there were a left presence within the working class, within poor neighborhoods, etc., it would give you a natural antidote to this stuff because. Nobody can understand it and nobody cares about it. And you can't be a narcissist and be an effective organizer. But because the left is almost entirely housed in nonprofits, universities, colleges, and study groups, postmodernism has become the common sense of this left. And it's given the, the natural instinct of the middle class, the narcissism, the self-absorption, the graspingness, the career ambitions, the inward looking, it's given it an articulate expression and a vocabulary that it wouldn't have otherwise had. Mm. So it's deepened it and it's given a theoretical license. And there there will never be a left until it abandons and not just goes around this stuff. The reason I wrote this book was, as I said, you have to go through the cultural turn, not around it. The reason is so many Socialists today, because they're university educated, have ter- bought into and internalized all the quite nonsensical criticisms, both of the theory of Marxism and also its practice. There's a catastrophic loss of confidence among leftists about their theory and about the history of their movement. And until we confront those facts and we leave the stuff behind us having engaged it, there's just no ch- The left right now is associated with what? defunding the police, with endless debates over pronouns, 
over uh, telling white kids who are six years old that they're responsible for slavery and things like that. That's Stop, how they're... St stopping parents being able to send their kids to school because yeah. uh, COVID, whatever. So what well. the liberals have succeeded in doing is hegemonizing the current call, what's called the left in such a way that in the public eye, the left is an authoritarian, inward-looking, narcissistic, hating, poor people-hating yeah. group of people. And that's that's what post the legacy of post-structuralism is mm -hmm. there, there's we have to stop you know sort of tiptoeing around this issue it's been absolutely disastrous and uh until we put it behind us we'll never leave this stratum this this part of the middle class that we inhabit and until we leave it we're dead we're dead in the water yeah well that's a great place to leave that's good no no that was like good forceful ending i was like okay good you're a, you might not listen to po podcasts but that was uh you know that, that was like a perfect ending so there we go thank uh you. thank you very much no we'll it's my to, pleasure. and, and if you're up for it, we should have you back on uh some other point in the, time. i have to tell you this was a fun podcast because normally interviewers don't prepare and they, I, I can tell from the questions they haven't read anything yeah but this was very literate it was extremely well done and so from my side i'd like to thank you for it oh well thank you it's nice to hear we we do try to we we make sure to read the books at the very least <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> the postmodernists knew this because for 40 years of treating uh, teaching students the, the students are now housing the ngos and the politicals and all that and this has become the language of the left yeah. because of it uh, yeah and i mean well you know i guess the one thing you could say is that you know 50 years ago 100 150 years ago you couldn't reach most of the masses because we're not just in terms of means of communication but people didn't have even the education yeah. Yeah. and that's something that's really good today yeah. i mean for all the criticisms about you know kind of the no, no, the, no, the, the, the degradation of public education and so on people the masses are educated they I'll tell you alex i came i was 15 when i came in 1980 i went to the midwest i was one of the two three non-Americans in my school and all Culturally, it's so much more advanced than yeah. it was. You know, we th this fucking left likes to go on about the racism. Of the, you should, you want to see racism? Go to India. Yeah. Go to fucking South Africa and see the black working class over there, the yeah. way they treat Zimbabwe. No, in, Bra in Brazil for that matter as yeah. well. I mean, there has been huge progress in the West. I mean, that's... And, and this is the, the most... You can't say that word, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> because it, I, and I defend it because it is backwards. It's re not, you know, anyway, is that they don't take the one win yeah. that we've had yeah. in over the neoliberal period, That's which right. is the breaking down of old forms of racism, nationalism, exactly. sexism, and so on. Exactly. And they won't take the win. They, oh, what they're doing is reconstituting they, racism. Now it's your fucking thought. Yeah. I, it's unconscious. Unco are you fucking kidding? If, if that becomes the issue, we've won. If unconscious bias is what remains for us to fight, we've won. The next book I'm writing is going to be on race. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> so it's going to take up a lot of these issues. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Okay. It's going to be an economic theory of race. I um, I want to sit here and just keep <laughs> this conversation going, but I um, have some meetings and work to do. Yeah, well, thanks this for afternoon. Yeah, It's a very nice meeting. Hello, everyone, and we're back. This is Alex, George, and Phil, and we're here to do an after party uh, discussing what we've heard with Vivek Chibber just then. Um, so, guys, first of all, what did you think in general of uh, of what Vivek had to say, George? Yeah, it was yeah, it was good, a good a good discussion. I mean, I think the it it made the case for the class matrix being being better, more interesting than at least the Matrix Re uh, Resurrections film that's come out recently. Um, but no, I think the the, the general point that of, of trying to look for sources of stability materially rather than culturally, I think that's a like that was the thing which probably stood out of the whole interview as as um, like very useful and as a as a very good way in which to critique some of the Gramscianism, some of the new left, which I think he does very well. This idea that you essentially you have to say that. It's, if there is stability you, you have to say then that the it, it all comes from from culture um and so this sort of led leclown move and various other people to either have to say the description that marxism gave of the structure was wrong or the description of false consciousness was wrong and basically leclown move take the the route of saying that the um marxism got the got the former got the the, the structure uh wrong and so that gives them a chance to sort of say well class isn't important anymore so yeah i think that just the way that he that that, that theme came out was was very useful i agree with george i thought it was in fact i thought that was brilliant i mean not having read the book but it came he expressed it very well the fact that the and just to build on what george said i mean he he clarified very succinctly and effectively how when you don't see stability as a material thing it forces you to attribute backwardness to the working class 
And so, you know, they're all bamboozled by television or they've all been kind of taken, you know, they're all consumer kind of consumerist drones or whatever it might be. Uh, that that is you're forced into the position of belittling their agency, essentially, the minute that you go away from trying to explain stability in material terms. And I thought that was very well, that was very well made. On the other hand, I thought what he gave with one hand, he kind of took away with the other. And you pushed him a bit on this, and I wasn't convinced by his response. So when he, you know, talked about how, say, um, you know, work, when he's saying about how uh, working class Americans vote against their interests, he seemed to kind of pick up that trope um, as if it, you know, as if it didn't have its, uh, didn't come with its own problems and attribute um, American workers voting for the Republican Party to the Republican and right wing domination of the media. Um, because there isn't kind of any independent working class voices in the media. And that seemed to me to be kind of rolling back, because again, it seemed then to talk about, um, into, you know, the domination of the media sphere, rather than thinking, I think, through more consistently what um, working class interests might look like. So I thought what he gave with one hand, he kind of took away with the other, which was a bit frustrating. But I thought you pushed him well, say, on the point about NAFTA. So he seemed to assume that kind of voting, you know, voting... There did seem to be this position, this kind of at least this tacit, maybe this is unfair, but it seemed to me there was this kind of underlying implicit assumption that, you know, it is more in the workers' interest that they vote Democrat rather than Republican. Um, and so where it seems to me that based on a confusion of political and economic interests, so it seems to me it is, you know, that it would, it makes perfect sense in terms of economic interests that you would vote against NAFTA. Um, if you're an American worker, given um, what's happened with deindustrialization, that you would vote for um, migration control, for controlled migration if you're a worker, because um, lots of immigrant labor will jeopardize your position, your wage and your economic position. And those seem to me to be logical economic in the economic interests of workers, particularly if there is no organized labor movement or political force that is trying to enhance workers' power and on which there might be the basis then of building a more solidaristic, larger politics. And so the fact that he was unable, I think he didn't really think in terms of the difference between having an interest in a period in which there is no organized representation of the working class and having an interest where there is an organized articulation of that interest, of that interest, that's a different thing. So there's a difference between economic interest and political interest. And that I don't think was clear. And I think that forced him into his own concession, which was to try and explain away workers voting for the wrong party by reference to right wing and corporate domination of the media. I'm, I'm not entirely sure I, I found that, though, I guess one con contradiction or, or seeming contradiction that I tried to draw out and I'm still unsure of was the way that the question that I raised of like, there's no going back, right? That there's no going back to the kind of Fordist compact of the mid 20th century. And yet ultimately his politics seems to presume some sort of, I mean, at least in terms of support for Bernie, some kind of social democracy and that at least, I mean, that that would, of course, begin not with the Democrats, but with um, class struggle in the workplace, you might say, well, that's defensible. But I I, I don't know, some, something about that, I, I left, I felt it fell a bit flat for me, but I can't entirely uh, put into words why why that is. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is it is maybe partly related to what Phil was talking about, like what are the conditions of turning individual um, interests into a into a kind of a collective political project. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a it's been a characteristic, I guess, of, of quite a few um, you know quite a few Marxists that there's there's been a, a, a an engagement with with the Bernie project that I don't know is is that the is that the the, the situation or the best that, that can be can be hoped for at this point in time in in America what, what are the alternatives you know what you know what what other political projects could there be I mean it's a bit like this you know what do you do about the Labour Party in in the British context it's like there's there's you have this institution which has its own um has its own gravity and distorts <laughs> distorts the the options available but I think yeah, if it's well, maybe I'm revealing my my preferences in terms of the analogy with Labour. Like that's that's the the institution that does the most to incorporate and um, de- block the interests of working class people um, from becoming politically expressed. I would say. So I think I mean, it's that there, you know it's a very analytical take, like you said, right um, at the start of your talk. Uh, sorry, at the start of your discussion with him. He has an analysis of interests, but without thinking through the political and institutional legacy of defeat, or indeed the kind of and the cumulative legacy within that of various iterations of of socialist, uh, labor, Marxist, revolutionary politics, and so on. So, abstractly considering what might be in working class interests that are not expressed as the result of this particular kind of. Um, left theorizing doesn't you know that doesn't seem to me to really grip the problem of a of the fact that it's also an institutional organizational and representational question it's not just a question of finding a way of you know just kind of finding the right vehicle for expressing a interest um, that's pre-existing already there but maybe you know maybe that's that's part of the logic of his argument that decided that the class structure class structure underwrites its own stability and this point that he made about the atomization collectivization dialectic i think that was you know that there is a tendency to um to kind of undermine um potentially all of those models of collective action i.e like political representative representative uh, vehicles because this is the you know, this this is the way that the economy has the basis so, changed. So, I mean, I'm not. Yeah, I'm. I'm just I'll thinking give, that that's that was something he did. He did address. I'll give you another example of where this this kind of plays in. So, when I was quite struck by the way in which you portrayed the question of interest, when you came to kind of discussing some practical um, or some concrete examples with respect to Brexit or with respect to the Canadian truckers, and he said, you know, if you look at the if you look at these arguments, they're always concrete, and that gives the opportunity for the left to engage. So he gave the example in the discussion of, say, a voter for Brexit who's frustrated with the decay of public services and unemployment, and that is what they're voting for when they um, when they vote for Brexit, or the Canadian, one of the Canadian truckers who is unable to visit their um, relative in hospital, despite the fact that they they don't have, they because they don't want a COVID pass, even though they're vaccinated um, against COVID. And so, and his point was that these very, you know, instead of these diffuse kind of understandings that we have concrete things we can grip on and engage with, and that would, should be what the left is doing. 
And my take would be entirely the opposite, that if there was an organized left, what it should be doing is precisely expanding those and precisely making those claims kind of diffuse and turning those, using those kind of very specific frustrations um, and showing that they are examples that connect to wider questions. That would yeah. be the point of an organized left, would be precisely, even if they are you know, specific, it would be to make them more general into an understanding as to why this justifies the need for a new kind of a new kind of politics. So it seemed to me that account of interest was reductive. But also, I think, and, um, you know, with Brexit, I mean, I think it is a misreading. And this is not, you know, I don't wish to. Um, I mean, I do. So I'm not going to say I don't wish to. I'm going to fly. <laughs> yeah, just stop, you, can, you can stop pretending that you I'm don't want to fly, talk about Brexit. I'm going to fly the flag for Brexit. Because we all know. We all know. I'm going to fly the flag for Brexit and say really? that this is what made this is what made this is what made it great insofar as it was great, was that people did connect. They intuited, you know, and I think you can read this in the greater rates of um, participation in the vote compared to general elections. They connected all those ordinary grievances about the NHS, about employment, about public services, regional imbalances, and so on. They connected it to a constitutional question that was presented to them. And so that move was made by voters and specifically by the working class voters who helped to deliver Brexit um, in 2019. So I, you know, that's, it seems to me that there is a deeper kind of, there is at least speaking for myself, that there probably is some disagreement on the character of interest and the historical legacies that are kind of obscured by his analytical emphasis purely on the kind of underlying structure of interest. Yeah, it ends up being, I guess, economistic, ultimately. Um, so yeah, no, it'd be interesting to kind of bring kind of politics, politics back in, really. Um, I think one final question, which I thought was interesting in it, um, which was interesting in the book, and I didn't get a chance to uh, discuss it enough, I think, in the interview, um, it's kind of long enough as it was, uh, is the materialist case or materialist argument for why there's a you know why there's particularism or essentialism, um, and I found that quite interesting. In the book, there's a great quote. I, I now I'm sorry I don't remember if I actually said this in the interview, but he notes that uh, it's it's an irony of bourgeois society that far from dissolving these extra market ties, its pressures incline workers to think, to cling to them with a desperate ferocity. And I found, I found that very convincing. And we can refer back to episodes that we had with. Uh, Karl, Mar uh, Karl Marx with Karl Remarks with Karl Scharrow um, and with uh, Achen van Eyck as well about uh, the kind of particularist drift away from universalism and how, and I hear reconstructing it kind of historically that the absence of universalist organizations without an organized left and a, a workers movement, that there's a tendency based really actually in people's interests to seek, uh, you know, kind of other forms of collective support um, in an atomized society to, to, to rely on kin or on caste, ethnicity, and so on as means of defense, often in, in pursuit of, you know, often narrow economic ends. And I thought that was um, very convincing and it was a nice way to build, at least I thought that, you know, um, Vivek builds very nicely on his previous work and his critique of post-colonialism and those forms of particularism in this book on, um, on effectively a defense of materialism and an attempt to extend uh, classical Marxism. 
Yeah, and I think there's a there's a uh, it it just kind of makes this point um, about how ideologies today represent very small partial social groups, and he kind of talks about feminism basically representing the interests of um, not of women but of professional women, and I think this is the the kind of the the cultural or ideational analog, if you want to put it that way. That basically, yeah, there's um you know with as the two kind of major dominant classes of of capitalism uh, one defeats the other and the defeated class is is not really politically organized um today like what does this mean it means that there is there is a you know class conflict doesn't go away but it certainly changes you know changes its form and changes the, the the actors and how they understand themselves and how they promote their their interests so yeah i think you can you could say that there is the material basis and the political basis i think this was the point i was trying to make there's a political basis for for that kind of particularism because yeah if you're not if you can't if working class interests as working class interests aren't represented then yeah why not um attach to a more particularist project because you're still in a still in a material struggle so why not phil you had had a couple of last points yeah well i there was just one on, I thought one, I thought it was, um, I, again, I mean, I agreed with you where you were pushing him about liberalism. I think it's incumbent on us to not to see liberalism, either neoliberalism or the liberalism of the early 19th century as simply self-interest, um, but to take it as a genuine project of freedom um, and identify its limits as such. And it seemed to me he was too quick to, been perhaps this purely on the basis of his discussion, perhaps this is unfair with respect to the book, but too quick to write them both off as purely kind of um, expressions of material self-interest. And the fact that, you know, there is, I think, a genuine difference in even if the 19, I mean, the 19th century liberals weren't Democrats, obviously, but their commitment to liberty was genuinely greater than the commitment to liberty seen by um, by liberals today. And I think that's important um, and worth kind of identifying, but also, I mean, worth engaging with, you know, the as connection between um, political, between property ownership and suffrage and not just thinking, you know, not necessarily, take, I mean, thinking about why there would be a connection and why capitalism makes that connection redundant. I suppose would be my point that it's not simply a case of um, material interest that the working class is a material interest in suffrage and the liberals have a material interest in restricting suffrage, but thinking through the issue itself, how does the question of political, how does the question of political participation connect to property ownership and how does capitalism invalidate or complicate that connection, which is, you know, um, um, been was, is the basis uh, for so much political theorizing. Anyway, but the other point was against you, Alex, which I wanted just to raise, which was oh, yeah. about your about this idea of um, the post-war period as a blip, um, because I'm not sure we can be so sanguine in assuming that the, the, the Trente Glorieuse, as they're called by Piketty and all the other pretentious people who talk like that, the 30-year period of post-war growth can be seen as a blip and now it's kind of capitalism reverting to normal. Because, you know, what I'd I guess what I'd like you to think is if imagine like imagine the dream of the young naive Alex when he started this podcast, right? Imagine that there was like 
you know, that Corbyn came to power and that Bernie was elected president and that Bolsonaro never happened and that they rebuilt the welfare state and they started kind of Keynesian demand management and the trade unions were built up and that working class became more politically active and that we had another kind of 30 years of stable, good growth, industrial participation, union organizing, labor force participation, and then it all kind of, um, you know, and then it all crumbled away again after the 30 years was over and you were nice and safely retired from the from the world of podcasting. And then it wouldn't be a blip, right? And it would be another kind of 30 years of a different kind of capitalism. So I think the idea of writing it off as a blip is makes the mistake, I think, of underestimating the agency of the left in reshaping capitalism. And to think of it as a blip risks, I think, kind of recreating the problems of the post-war left, um, not least the not least um, mistaking the role of Bernie Sanders. I wish I could be as optimistic as Vivek is in his discussion with you, that Bernie has kind of forced the identitarians into the open. It doesn't seem to me that's true. You know, they dropped Bernie the minute that he started, when he started saying things, and indeed he retreated before them. When he started saying things about how open borders was a Koch brothers policy, you know, he was forced to retreat. Um, and it seems to me they've carved out, you know, they've carved out um, their place. This new generation has carved out a particular place in cultural and civic and public life um, through their politics. It doesn't seem to me that they've in any way been exposed or contained or limited um, in any meaningful way by Bernie. And in fact, Bernie was their useful idiot. Well, I mean, just on that last point, I think, I, I mean, he might have forced it out into the open, which doesn't mean that he didn't crumble in the face of them, but they he kind of showed them up for who they are. But I think, of course, the but question is, but, 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 that, but that's, well, to, to, uh, to us, to us in witnessing it. Um, but the point that Bernie ultimately, you know, folded in entirely to the Democrats project means that that relief now is no longer set. You know, one can think of a counterfactual in which Bernie extends all the money and support that he got into a new political party, which is what he should have done. Uh, you know, then that looks rather different. To respond to the kind of maybe more serious point, actually, about whether the, you know, kind of this, the post-war period was a blip, um, I think the difference there is that even if, you know, even under a successful Bern, Bernie and Corbyn administration, whatever, uh, which itself is, you know, is question begging because one wonders about how quickly that could have been undermined, but, uh, but even imagining success, they would not benefit from the growth rates that happened after the Second World War. And that's what underwrote that whole conjuncture. And so that's why I'm saying it's not coming back. And my point actually is more just a, a sort of intellectual one insofar as a we should not go into politics thinking that is the norm, treating the post-war period as the norm of capitalism. And I think that's the more important point um, in terms of how we approach today um, rather than... Well, what what difference does it make? Sorry, I don't want to be like really crude and anti-historical, but like if you think it's a blip or if you don't think it's a blip, what does it, I mean, am I just missing something? Is it like it the relative? Because it's a nostalgia, because there's always, nostal because there's, it, it avoids the nostalgia politics that is present on the right, the populist right and the populist left today, that what should have been the case has now been taken away. And that thing that they hold to be should but in the case is actually the product of particular historical forces. The end of the Second World War, the grand class compromise, uh, the cohabitation of social democracy and Christian democracy and all the rest of it. And that isn't coming back. 
So that has very important practical yeah. implications in terms of what your politics are. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I think just there's no going back anyway. So it doesn't. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. I guess is my is, is my conclusion. No, but it also. But no, but it also. Still, it also focuses us to understand and to look at capitalism again and not neoliberalism versus social democracy to put capitalism under question. And that's what I think is more even more important. And what I really mean by this, um, if we see precarity, for example, as more of a constant in capitalism than uh, an exception, then we should maybe, you know, try to move beyond capitalism rather than purely trying to seek some bit of stability within uh, within this chaos. You had me at try to move beyond capitalism. No, I mean, that's that's already the yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I think I'm being a bit a bit a bit dense um but yeah i mean because obviously the, the those models are not unimportant but it's still the same i guess I'm just trying to make the point that it's it's still the same question that we've had for you know for 100 years that we still have the technology to to have a different sort of society but do we have the political organization and will it's not so much about the economic growth rates or or whatever it's it's it seems to me at least it's still that political uh, question of whether we want to whether we're able to take control and rule ourselves but i do take you know i do take the um the point about the conjuncture okay um i think we'll leave that here there's plenty of food for thought there we might want to return at some point uh, in a more dedicated fashion to this question about um how we should think about the post-war period and whether we should treat it as a norm or not and so on and um but that's it for now um for patrons who uh, are you who are listening to this because uh, this is for patrons only uh, we hope you enjoyed the interview let us know what you think we're uh, a bit late with doing an alpha bonus bonus responding to all your questions and there's quite a lot to deal with there so we're going to come out with a special uh, bumper one of that of uh, alpha bonus bonus uh, very shortly uh, after this um but that's it for now catch you later bye-bye